What's happening, guys? Thanks for being here. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Zach Castero Show. So we spent a lot of time in the last, oh, I guess the first several episodes talking about politics, which was not my intention when I decided to start the, the show. And and yet here we are in January of 2021, and it seems like politics is, is uh, the driving force in our society right now. There's a lot that's gone on. We've talked a lot about that. I've talked a lot about that. And I think that for many of us, that topic is dominating lots of conversations around the dinner table and, and just in general, in our workplace places and in family life. And it's obviously created a lot of anxiety and for some people, a lot of worry and for a lot of people, a lot of conflict and confrontation, which is unfortunate, but it's understandable. So I, in my last episode, said that I wanted to talk about something other than politics and that I might talk a little bit about money. So that's what I want to do in this episode. But I will say that it's almost impossible anymore to talk about money without talking about politics because the political climate is drastically influencing the economic reality that we are faced with in America. And I think even more so that we will be faced with moving forward in America. And I'm trying to find the time in these videos and these audios, these podcasts, whatever you want to call them. I'm trying to find the time to spend a little bit more upfront in the preparation so that they're not just ramblings. And so in the future, I probably will actually maybe pull some articles that I'm finding and, and comment on those because I think it creates a little bit more structure behind what I'm talking about. And hopefully that is better for the listener, for you. Because I know for me, it feels sometimes like I'm jumping around or circling over and over and, and I don't, that's not my preference. So anyway, today it's interesting because in doing some of the, the preparation for this episode, which I will candidly say isn't, uh, I didn't hit my goal in this episode in terms of the, the level of preparation that I'd like in future episodes, but I, I did a little bit of preparation. And the thing that was so interesting to me about my preparation in, in the context of what I wanted to talk about today is the outcome or the, the, the conclusion that I came to was actually a little bit different than what I thought I was going to come to when I decided to do this episode. And in stepping back and thinking about that and thinking, how is that, how did that happen? I think the conclusion that I came to and, and the thing that I want to start out by sharing is there's a narrative that's taking place in just about every single major area of life today. It's being driven by the media. It's being driven by the government. It's being driven by uh, stakeholders, by people with vested interests. And you can take just about any area of life and there is a narrative. And I think what I, what I'm, what I'm learning, the conclusion that I'm coming to is we really have to challenge the narratives. And I'm not saying be a conspiracy theorist, but what I am saying is the better questions that we ask, the better answers we will get. And I think that so often we don't challenge the narrative. And I think that the, that's the big danger that I see in, in censorship is we need to be able to have public transparent dialogue about some of these major issues that we're facing because if we don't and if we just buy into 
whatever this group is saying or that group is saying, there's a real chance that, and I don't even think it's always intentional, but I think that there's a, a, the, the potential where groupthink will lead us to outcomes that we don't want. And that's because when everybody gets in a room and they think the same way, it almost, it almost leads to these self-fulfilling prophecies, right? The example I wanna use, because I think maybe that's too abstract, is as I've shared in the past, I deal a lot with the affordable housing conversation. That my, my, my real job is in the commercial real estate market, the investment real estate market. We do a lot in the multifamily housing sector. And so I spend a lot of my time dealing with this conversation that we're having about affordable housing. And that conversation is, is quite interesting. And you're hearing it all across the country. You're hearing about the housing crisis, the affordable housing crisis, about how homelessness is coming because of a lack of affordable housing. And there's this narrative that is, that is taking hold in pretty much all across the country. And, and I think when you look at the actual data, I'm not saying that the narrative is completely false, but I'm saying that the narrative is not completely right. And I, and I think that that is the case in so many areas of life. And so when we talk about money, I, I said in the very first episode, I think money is one of the five pillars that makes up life, right? You have to have money to do things. <laughs> you, you have to have money to survive. It's not that money makes us happy. It's not money that, it's not that money fulfills us, but it's money is very important. And understanding money is very important. And the better that you understand money in America and in any Western civilization, really, the better you will do. And the reason for that, which is something I try and remind people of quite often, is the better that you understand money and finance, the better chance you have at thriving. And that's because money and math, I mean, money is, is we use math to deal with money, right? And math has like global rules. It's like gravity, right? There's these natural laws that whether we like them or not are true. And it's the same with money and math, right? Math is the universal language. It's the language that no matter what country you're in or what language you speak, it's true, right? The equations are true. The outcome of the equations are true. And it's the same thing here when we deal with money. The reason that people who have good financial literacy seem to rise to the top in these civilizations is because, well, we all need money to survive. And when they understand how money works very well, uh, they have the potential and often is the case where they kind of rise to the top where they become influential. And that's because those laws, the laws of money and the laws of math are universal. And people don't like that in America today. There's, there's people that think that we need to change that. But the reality is you're not going to change it because these laws don't change, right? And so when, when we look at money and we look at how money is a pillar in life, and certainly not the most important pillar, but a pillar, it's important for us to understand it. And again, it's important for us to ask questions and to question the narrative and to ask better questions. And so, for example, when we talk about affordable housing, right, in a lot of these circles, we have spent most of our time talking about and squabbling over how to develop more affordable housing. Or for you, you might be in the market to buy a house. It might be your first house and you might be going, geez, I don't know how I'm ever gonna get to the point where I can even afford to buy a house. And then, and then the conversation shifts to, well, 
Whose fault is that? And often it gets pinned on, you know, the, the greedy, in air quotes, if you're listening to this, the greedy developers, the greedy real estate people. And we've allowed sort of this haves and haves nots conversation to, to basically take up most of the narrative in, in relation to real estate. And it's a very short-sighted way to think of things. And so I'm gonna do something different today. I'm gonna try and share my screen here. And hopefully I can, you know, you can still see my face. And for those of you who might be listening online, uh, I will try and do this in a way where you can actually understand what I'm talking about without actually seeing my screen. And so what I did here is I created a real simple spreadsheet and I went back and I said, in my area in Thurston County, right? In 2007, what was the median home price? It was $272,000. The interest rate though, on a 30 year fix at that time was about 6.96%. So if you bought a house in August of 2007 and you paid $272,000 and you put 20% down, which is about $54,000, you'd have a loan of about $217,000, $218,000. You're paying six almost 7% on that loan. Your mortgage payment, not including taxes and insurance, just the debt service is about $1,441. Fast forward to today. Today, actually December of 2020, the average home price in my area, the median home price was $390,000, almost $391,000. To put 20% down, instead of 54,000, which you would have needed in 2007, you got to put down 78,000. Your, your loan balance would now be 313,000, but here's the deal. The average interest rate on a 30-year fix with 20% down is about 2.75% which means your mortgage payment's only $1,276, which is less than the mortgage payment that you would have had paying, you know, $120,000 less for the house in 2007, which means from a monthly standpoint, an ongoing monthly payment standpoint, it's actually less expensive from a mortgage standpoint, from a debt service standpoint to own the house today than it was 13 years ago, okay? That's not part of the narrative you hear. Now, here's the deal. Obviously, the barrier to entry, which is the down payment, has gone up. It's increased. That's something that we have to figure out how to work with. Okay, now here's the point in sharing this with you is when you look at that, when you think about that, when you look at the fact that on a monthly standpoint, from a monthly standpoint, your mortgage payment is less expensive today with lower interest rates than it was 13 years ago. There's a couple of things that you got to think about. One is that, well, that might be true, but property taxes have increased probably enough. And I didn't do it as part of my spreadsheet, but if I went back and looked, I would venture to guess that on the average house in my area, your property taxes have increased faster than the rate of inflation, at least the CPI, again, air quotes, because uh, we know inflation is greater than the CPI, but, but your property taxes have probably increased enough to make up that difference. And so you have all these people saying that housing is less affordable today than it was 13 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it might be. And while that might be true in some cases, it's actually not true. It's not completely true in many cases. And so I share that because if we don't actually take into consideration the nuance in certain things, well, any major thing that we're talking about, we find ourselves in really bad predicaments. And you can see from, from human history that when we overgeneralize things and when we create overly generalistic 
solutions and policies, we actually never get the end result that we're after. So here's the deal. When we look at the cost of housing, and when we look at the fact that it's gone up from 272,000 in my area, median home price in 2007, to 390,000 today, I didn't do the math uh, in terms of what percentage a year that's increasing, but my guess is, and we could do it, but my guess is three to 5% a year. But people would make you think that it's 20. You know, they, 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 they sort of pick and choose what they want you to, to hear. But here's the kicker. The kicker is, when you look at the monetary decisions that the federal government is making right now, and the way that we are putting more money into the system in a shorter period of time than we've ever done ever in human history, including during the Great Recession, why I wanna share this with you is because asset prices, prices of stocks, prices of real estate, prices of commodities, prices of things that we call assets are going to keep going up, right? And that's because if you look at our last example, in 2007, interest rates were 7% on a 30-year fixed in this example, okay? Now they're 2.75%. And they can't go down much farther. I mean, they can't go down. And, and, and going down makes things cheaper for somebody that's utilizing credit. But the problem is it, it also creates more buying power, right? It means that you can buy more you can afford to buy more with the same amount of money because the interest rate that you're paying is lower. And so what does that do? Well, it, cr it creates increased asset prices, especially assets that we're using leverage to acquire. And so in this example, it's like, listen, I can go back into my spreadsheet. I'll try and share my screen again here. And, and I can say, well, shoot, what if this interest rate goes down to 2%, right? Like, I'm just gonna do this here. If it goes down to 2%, you know, now, now we just dropped the mortgage payment another $100, $125 a month, which means to have the same mortgage payment, you could pay more for the house. And so what we're finding is that's what's happening. And the price of houses are just going up and the price of land is going up and the price of buildings is going up. People also at times will buy stocks on margin. Margin is credit. It's like getting a loan to buy stocks. What does that do? It allows stock prices to go higher. Here's the reason I share that because we have politicians today here. I know I, I didn't want to talk about politics, but this is why it matters. We have politicians today and those politicians are telling us, hey, we're just going to create more money. We're going to stimulate the economy. We're going to give you the checks. We're going to fight for $15 minimum wage and everything's going to work out. And unfortunately, the reality is, is the government cannot save us from what ultimately will happen as a result of this. And I'm not saying necessarily that the economy is going to completely tank and that everything's going to fall apart and that we're going to deal with what we did in 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. But what I am saying is it is pretty clear that the people who win during these periods of time are people who own assets, right? Because think about it. You can go, I, I checked before this video and I planned on sharing it, uh, but I just didn't have time. You can go and you can look at commodity prices. What have commodity prices done in the last 12 months? Folks, they are on a rocket ship up, right? Corn, soybean, even oil to a degree. Sugar, you look at these commodity prices, lumber. I mean, if you, listen, I've been building a house the last year. I know what happened to lumber prices. 
It is happening, folks. We are having infl inflation. Are we having hyperinflation? Not yet. I don't know that we will because I don't think money is changing hands enough, right? Part of, of inflation is the velocity of money. And right now what's happening is a lot of people are taking all this money they're getting and they're actually saving it, which is not what the government wants because we're a consumer-driven economy. We need people to buy things and they're not buying things like they're supposed to be. Instead, they're saving, thing, saving money because they don't know if they're going to have a job next week. They don't know if they're, they're going to have a job next month. And so what's happening is you have the government saying that, hey, we're going to continue to keep you locked down. And then we're going to give you money so that you can go spend the money. But we're not spending the money to the degree that they want us to, but we are spending some of the money. And because we're not producing things like we're supposed to be, like we normally do, the cost of things is going up because you have a whole bunch of money that, that is competing for a limited amount of goods because we're not producing enough goods. And so the price of those goods are increasing and it's happening all around the world. And so lumber prices are going up and coin, corn and soybean and sugar and oil and all these things are happening. And here's what's happening. People who own assets like stocks or real estate are doing okay. And they're probably going to do okay because the price of those assets is also going up. But people who don't have the money to buy assets are getting poorer like really fast. So for example, in, in the housing example that I, that I used, the barrier to entry that really changed, the only thing that really changed from an affordability standpoint in the, in the ability to buy a home in my county was the down payment requirement. Well, most people who are making minimum wage or even the area median income in my area don't have an extra you know, $24,000 to put down on a house. And so what happens? They don't buy houses, they rent. And then they keep renting it and keep renting and keep renting because as those assets, as those houses, as the land gets more and more expensive each year, the barrier to entry, which is the down payment, and I understand there's nuance to this. There are other ways to buy houses without 20% of a down payment. However, that comes with other costs like mortgage insurance, right? But nonetheless, as those asset prices get higher and higher and higher, the, let's say the bottom 80% of income earners in America have a harder and harder and harder time buying those assets. And so who buys the assets? Well, the rich people. The very people that the government is coming in saying they're trying to keep from owning these things are the only people who can actually afford to own the things. And the same thing's happening in the stock market. And so what happens? Well, then we create more derivatives. We create more opportunities to buy a slice of some asset because the asset itself is too expensive. We're seeing that in almost all asset classes. And, and when you look at what's driving that, most of it is interest rates. Think about this. So Warren Buffett's mentor, Benjamin Graham, he wrote a book. He wrote a few books. One was The Intelligent Investor, one was Security Analysis or Securities Analysis, I can't remember. Anyway. His formula for stock picking was take the, the, the interest rate that's being paid on a AAA corporate bond, right? A high grade, high quality corporate bond. And I, I might be getting this a little off here, but I believe it was add 4.4% to that interest rate. And that's the rate you need to be able to get in order to justify buying a stock instead of the AAA rated corporate bond. So let's just say that a triple A 
corporate rated bond is paying 3%. I, I don't know what it's paying right this minute, but let's say it's 3% hypothetically. Then in order to justify buying a stock, you got to at least know you're going to earn 7.5%. Okay. And that makes sense because a AAA corporate rated bond is lower risk than buying an equity, a stake in the business. And so in order to justify the increased risk, you have to have a greater reward. Well, traditionally speaking, there's a huge chunk of all investable dollars in the Amer wow, investable dollars in the American economy that are in the bond market. And yes, there are some of those dollars in the bond market today, but a lot less than normal. Why? Because they're not paying anything. And so when bonds don't pay anything, and so then people don't want to own those bonds because they're not going to make their, that much money, and certainly not enough money in many cases to keep up with inflation. Well, what do they do? Well, then they go out and they invest that money into other asset classes. Well, what are those asset classes? Well, some of them are, are private businesses. A lot of them is real estate and a lot of them are stocks. And so you have all this money that normally would be going into something like the bond market that's being dumped into the stock market, into the real estate market, and now into the commodities market because people are trying to, to, to find something that pays a return. That's more than nothing, which is basically what you get if you lend the federal government money right now, which is why there aren't that many people doing it. There aren't that many institutions doing it, right? The Fed is, is primarily doing it. Even other countries now are not really excited about buying U.S. bonds. And so we, we're, we're stuck in this perpetual cycle and then bringing this back home. Then I go to these meetings and, and we're talking about how to make housing affordable. And we're talking about, you know, well, maybe we can cut the impact fees and maybe we can speed up the process and, and maybe we can incentivize via tax incentives. And all those are good ideas and all those will help to a degree. But, but you know what's driving the cost increase more than, or at least equal to all of those things is, is federal monetary policy, which we have no control over. And yet we keep electing these people that say, oh, well, we'll fix the problem. We're gonna fix the problem. We're gonna give you money. Folks, it doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. And this is gonna to continue to happen because they are going to continue to stimulate the economy probably for at least the next 12 months, likely further than that. And so the reason I share this is because if you're watching this video and you have cash in your account, and I'm not, a, I'm not your financial advisor, so I'm not telling you what to do. This is something that you need to vet with your own advisors. But folks, it's a, probably a good idea to get a good chunk of that money out of cash and into assets, right? Now you have to be smart about what assets, because if you look at, let's say the PE ratio for the S&P 500, uh, it's a little aggressive. If you look at the cap rates on, let's say investment grade real estate, commercial and multifamily real estate, cap rates are pretty aggressive. And cap rates are driven, right? Oh, I shouldn't say that. People will pay aggressive cap rates because they anticipate that revenue and profits will increase. And for the last 10 or 15 years, that's been happening, right? Since we came out of the Great Recession. So I guess not 10 or 15, but let's call it eight. Now we don't know. We're going into this scenario where there's, I think, some 30 million people who aren't working right now. Probably it's more than that. And the reality is, is if we don't start opening up businesses, it's gonna get worse. And this is the thing that I just cannot get my mind wrapped around. It's like, 
the best way to stimulate the economy at this point and, and to keep things like this from happening is to start working again. We cannot just think that if we just keep printing money, that that money is, is worth anything because it's not. Money that's worth something is money that came as a result of something being produced, right? So we can keep printing the money, so to speak. It's not actually what usually is happening. It's not actually usually us printing money, but you get the, that's generally how it's talked about because it seems to be easier to understand. But uh, here's the deal. What we need to do is not print more money. We need to stimulate the economy by getting people back to work. And there is a way to do that safely. There is a way to get people back to work without putting everybody at risk. And that will work to stimulate our economy a heck of a lot better than printing money that we don't have to print in the first place that will just exacerbate the problem that we have, which is the problem we say we're trying to avoid and fix, which is rich people getting richer and poor people getting poorer. And then if we don't, we're just gonna create a bigger war. The, the politicians will create a bigger war between rich people and poor people, rich people in the middle class, because they'll say they know how to fix the problem when it was their decisions that primarily created the problem in the first place. Again, I go back to when I started and I said, we have to start asking better questions. We have to start, we have to start letting people who understand how these things work, question the narrative. I, I keep thinking like in these policy decisions, it seems to me that what we should have is, is key performance indicators, accountability measures. So when the politicians come out and they say things like, hey, we're gonna, in, we're gonna enact an executive order that, or whatever it is, that bumps the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour, and then they make a promise because it will help you get out of poverty. It will help you be more prosperous. Then what I think we should do is have an accountability measure, a key performance indicator that tracks whether or not that policy decision led to that outcome so if and when it doesn't, we can get rid of the policy. We can try something different because we don't do that. Instead, we just keep doubling down on what didn't work. Folks, to tell a small business in Alabama that they're gonna have $15 minimum wage, when may, I don't know what Alabama's minimum wage is, but I'm guessing it's probably like eight bucks an hour. And it's that for a reason. But to, to like double that, or whatever it's, it actually is, I don't know Alabama's minimum wage, but to increase it drastically, here's what will happen. A lot of businesses in Alabama will either, one, raise their prices, or two, they will go out of business or they will have less people employed. And then that gives a competitive advantage to the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Best Buys and the Costcos because they have economies of scale that can spread that cost increase across their whole global business and it doesn't affect them to the same degree. And this is what I keep saying. These idiotic, I'm sorry, they are idiotic policy decisions that are so short-sighted. They end up making big businesses bigger and small businesses go away every single time. And yet all these politicians get up on their little podium and they talk about how much they love small business and they're champions of small business. It's all bull. They're not. And I know because I run small businesses. And the reality is, is that every layer of regulation that they introduce 
makes it harder for us small businesses to survive, makes it more expensive for us to actually do what we do to the point where here's what happens. And I see it all the time. We sell our small businesses or we close our small businesses. That's what happens. And then what happens? Well, big businesses buy those businesses and they get bigger or when they close, big businesses just take the customers. And then big businesses get bigger and small business gets smaller. And that's because we keep making these moronic policy decisions. And yet I understand that there is nuance. I understand that we have to find ways to create more buying power for more people. But raising their dollar per hour wage doesn't actually equate in most cases to buying power, right? Like think about this. Let's say that you, I don't know, let's say that you make tables, right? And let's say that it costs you in labor $20, which is a lot more, but let's just say, let's say it costs you $20 in labor today to make a table. And let's say that minimum wage today is $10 an hour. So it takes two hours to make the table. And let's just say that you sell the table for double what it costs you. 40 bucks. It costs you $20 in labor to make the table. Let's say the material is 10 bucks. That's 30. And, and so let's say we sell it for 60, not 40. So we sell the table for 60. It costs us 30 to make it. Right? Now let's say we double or we increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now it costs $30 in labor. And people will say, oh, well, it's still $10 in material. No, because the material had labor involved in making and producing and delivering the material. So let's say the material goes up to 15. Now it's $45 to make the table. Now, if we want to make the same amount of money, we have to sell the table for $90. Okay. That's how it works. You sell the table for 90 bucks. Well, guess what? The guy making the table has no more ability to buy the table than he did before when he made less money. He doesn't. And the problem is like, there's a thing called price elasticity. Not every business sector has the ability to just raise prices commensurate with the increase in costs. And so what happens is in those industries where people can't just raise the price to make up for the increased costs, those businesses close or they sell to businesses that have more economies of scale, the businesses that can absorb those cost increases. And it just puts small businesses out of business. It does. And so what I really wanted to share in this video is if you are trying to figure out how to handle the, the, the next, let's say 12, 24, 36, 48 months in the economy, as Charlie Munger put it in an interview about two weeks ago, we really are as, as a world economy and as a national economy, we are in absolutely uncharted waters. We are in a place that really has never existed in the history of monetary policy on a world scale in, 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 in our country. And so I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know where things will end. What I do know is I'm going to continue to learn. I'm going to continue to try and hone my skills as it, as it relates to finance, as it relates to money, because what we know is that politicians 
think about this, especially national federal politicians. Many of these people go into office broke or middle class and they come out filthy rich. And so what we know is that so many politicians, I don't wanna say all, but most I would say politicians, their number one thing they care about is self-preservation. That is what they care about, getting reelected. Whether that's because they like the power or they're genuinely trying to help people, I'm not sure, whatever, I don't wanna judge every individual, but we know that they care about self-preservation, most of them. So what we know is they're not just going to destroy everything because they are invested in the things that they don't want to destroy. And if we understand finance and if we understand money and if we understand how business works and how the economy works and we watch what they do, we can try and make moves and we can try and pivot where we need to so that we don't get wiped out if and when bad things in our economy happen. Unfortunately, the reality is there are a lot of people who don't have the ability to do that. Maybe it's not their skill set. Maybe they don't care. And unfortunately, they get wiped out. That's the fact. That's the reality. For me, I, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, I think that there's a, a real probability, not a, not a guarantee, but there's a real probability that the United States dollar is going to decline in value, that we will have inflation. We almost have to because that's really the only way that we can continue to pay for a lot of the debt that we're creating at a national level. And so if you have a bunch of cash that you're sitting on, you, start, you gotta start thinking about it. Like, let's say that you had a million dollars in the bank, which I know most people watching this don't, but let's just say hypothetically you did. If you had a million dollars and you knew it was gonna sit in your bank account for the next, I don't know, 12 months because you thought, hey, this is my, my safety net. This is, makes me feel comfortable. Well, let's say that that million dollars today could buy you three acres of commercial land in your town, okay? Now let's say we have inflation. Let's say we have inflation, not hyperinflation, but let's say we have 10% inflation. Well, your million dollars sitting in your bank account, getting paid, let's just be generous and say 1% interest, means that you'll have $1,010,000 next January in your bank account. But that million dollar piece of land that went up 10% is now $1.1 million. I mean, you lost a lot of money. You lost 90,000 bucks because you had cash sitting in your bank account. Now, if you took that cash, and again, I'm not your financial planner, so, so talk to your planner about it. But if you took the million dollars and you bought the piece of land, right, this is a general example, then your million dollars would be worth a million, 100,000, and would have at least kept up with inflation, right? And I know there's lots of things that go into that. I'm not saying that that example is, is the thing to do. But my point is, you gotta start thinking about what kinds of assets can you own that as we experience inflation, we'll at least keep up with inflation. Whether it's stocks, whether it's real estate, whether it's commodities or gold or silver. I know those are commodities, you know what I'm saying. Whether it's a producing asset like a farm or, or a business, start thinking about where can you invest. One of the things we're doing is we are looking for land in other areas, areas that are more friendly to people who actually wanna run businesses, to people who actually wanna be productive in society, the area that I live in. A lot of these folks, uh, they, they really do try and make it very difficult for us to be successful because they actually think that people who wanna be successful and run businesses and build buildings and housing are like these greedy overlords that, that need to be, we need to be rid of. And 
And so we're looking for places because I think what's going to happen, this is my prediction. Again, I could be wrong, but I think, and you're starting to see it. People are leaving California in droves and they're going to places, right? Where they want people who will be productive. They want to open their economy. They want to let people thrive and prosper. And I think that we are looking for, for property in some of those places because those places, I think, are going to have more success than these other places. Part of the reason they're going to have more success is because, like, if you look at Washington State right now, they're trying to pass a, an unconstitutional, I'll say that, income tax via capital gains. Why is that? Well, because they won't open their economy, and so they're going broke. And so they're too dumb to realize that actually creating more of a tax burden on people who are already burdened because they can't work is literally the dumbest thing that you could ever do. And they're trying to say, oh, well, we're just going to do it to the rich people. Well, guess what? If you do too much of that to the rich people, the rich people will leave. And they'll go to a state that doesn't discipline them for, for being successful and hiring people and creating jobs and paying wages, but instead rewards them, as is what we are seeing in California. And I think that those states, which just happen to be more red-leaning, will actually have more success because they're going to let people work. And the only thing that will screw it up is if the federal government gets too involved and takes the power away from the states. But, but, but we as a family are looking at how can we invest in some of those areas? Because right now, the place, the place that we live doesn't reward us the same way as those places. And so if, if you're thinking about how do you approach the next several years in terms of where you invest your money and how you think about money and, and how you look at money, I, I would just encourage you start looking at some of those areas, right? The other thing is if we know, let's say the Biden administration is going to get in, which it, they are, um, what we also know is they're going to push for green energy. So you got to be thinking about, well, what's that mean? Well, it means the government will create tax incentives to stimulate that part of the economy. Well, you better start looking into some green energy opportunities because they are going to get subsidized. And that subsidization will probably lead to some of those companies generating a lot of success, meaning their stock prices will skyrocket, right? So there are ways that we can, again, politicians are in it for self-preservation. We can see where it is that they are trying to influence the marketplace and we can invest in those areas. Like people freak out about Donald Trump not paying taxes or allegedly not paying taxes. The thing that people have to understand is, listen, I'm not saying that it's inherently right or wrong, but what I am saying is the reason he doesn't pay taxes is because he's investing his money where the government has said, we want people to invest money there. And in exchange, we will give them tax breaks. That's how it works. The way it works is the government says, listen, we know that it's risky to put your money in this thing over here. So let's say in the Biden administration, we know that it's risky to put your money in green energy. Why? Because it's not proven yet. It, it's, not, it's not a mainstay yet. And so there's a lot of risk that you could put your money in there and you could lose it. And so here's what we're going to do. In order to get you and incentivize you to put your money in there, we're going to give you tax breaks. We're going to give you tax incentives because we know that those will help offset some of the risk. Well, for a long time, that's been in real estate. And now you're going to see that start to also shift into green energy. And it already has to a degree like solar credits and things like that. But I think my prediction is you're going to see it like we've never seen it before. 
Okay, now there will be people in the green energy space that literally pay no taxes. And people will be all up in arms and they'll be freaking out because they're too ignorant to understand. And I don't mean ignorant in a degrading way. I'm saying they just don't know that the reality is, is that's happening because the government is actually trying to get people to put money where they wouldn't otherwise put money for an agenda that they want to push. That's what they did in real estate with the opportunity zones. They said, listen, if you put money into these, into these parts of the community that are down, they're run down, they're, they're derelict in certain ways. If you will put and risk your money in those areas to revitalize those areas, you don't have to pay any tax, basically. There's some nuance to it, but generally speaking, no tax. Now, if somebody goes and invests all their money in those areas and doesn't pay any tax, you shouldn't be mad at them like the media wants you to be. You should be very happy and grateful because they did what the government wanted them to do and incentivized them to do, and they hopefully revitalized an area exactly the way the government wanted. Folks, that's how this works. We gotta stop believing the government when they try and pin and pit the haves versus the have-nots because so often the haves, not always, I know there are people that take advantage of the systems, but like think about the people in your community who are wealthy. Most of those people are just taking advantage of in investing their capital in the areas the government has asked them to and incentivized them to. And, and usually they do that because it leads to a positive result. Right? Like turning around a, a derelict area via the Opportunity Zone funds. That is something that we should be celebrating, not demonizing. We are going to have opportunity there in things like, I would say, green energy with the Biden administration. I think we should also be looking at gen, uh, uh, genes, right? Like stocks that, that businesses that are built around gene technology, around the genome, right? We are seeing things happening in, the, in genomics, I think that's what it's called, that literally we didn't even think were possible 30 years ago. And that's gonna be a huge opportunity. And so I don't want this to just be doom and gloom, but listen, it's like we got to focus on what's between our ears. If in this period of time we get frozen, we get scared, we get afraid, we're screwed. And you might be saying, Zach, but I don't even have any money to invest in any of these things. Okay, that's fine. Doesn't mean you can't learn about them. Doesn't mean you can't be interested in them. Doesn't mean you can't critically think about them. Because listen, if you do, if you spend the time right now really trying to learn about this stuff and grow in your ability to understand this stuff, when, when these opportunities present themselves, you'll be in a position to take advantage of them. Maybe not necessarily buying into the companies or buying uh, the land or whatever, but, but being a part of companies that do, because that's where the jobs will be. That's where the opportunity will be. And I will promise you this. We live in a society where most people won't put in the hard work and the time to do it. And then they'll complain about it when it just bulldozes them. But the people who did will be okay. The people who did will, will be having, they'll have a job. They'll be working in those industries and in those companies. They'll be moving up the ladder because they put in the time and the effort that nobody else was willing to before everything went sideways. Like that's the kind of people that hopefully are watching this show are the kind of people that want to be in the positions that, that when the economy changes and when the monetary policy changes, they can pivot because they're expert generalists, because they actually enjoy learning about all these different things so that as the world is always changing, the world changes faster now than it ever has before. And yet we have trained a bunch of people and educated like swaths of millions, tens, hundreds of millions of people to be ad adverse to change. And then those four, poor folks are the ones that absolutely just get demolished 
when you know what hits the fan. But those people who don't buy into that indoctrination, those people who are constantly learning, constantly evolving their understanding, constantly looking for where the opportunities lie, constantly critically thinking and asking hard questions, those are the people who survive and don't just survive, but thrive. Why? Because they could see the writing on the wall and they started to invest early and they made those decisions and then they survived and they thrived. And the sad thing is so often our society then demonizes those very people. And I understand, I know I keep saying this, I understand that we cannot overgeneralize. Not all business owners are good people. Not all business owners are bad people. Not all investors are greedy warlords, right? Not all politicians are evil. We got to stop talking like that. Because really what we need is we need more businesses that employ more people so that more people can pay their jobs. And yes, we can have conversations about and debate about and, and squabble over how much we pay and, and how that pay works and all these different things. But the reality is right here, right now, today, we need to let businesses open back up and they can do it safely and we can protect people who are vulnerable. But, but if we do not do that, there will be lots more people who get absolutely hosed than would have been had we let people go back to work. And the people who will get hosed are the very people that all these, politici all these politicians are trying to say they're there to save. Folks, the government cannot save you. They cannot save me. It's literally impossible. They've never done it in, in all of human history. And every time they say that they're going to do it, it gets worse. What's going to save this economy, what's going to fix a lot of these problems are letting creative people do God's work and be creative, right? And work together to solve some really big problems. So anyway, I know that I said I wouldn't talk much about politics, but you just can't because politics, again, is in, it literally influences every, every one of the five pillars of, of our life, right? It impacts our faith more now than ever, right? With some of the things that are happening in the, in the digital world and what we're allowed to and not allowed to talk about. Uh, it impacts our relationships. It impacts our health, right? Vaccinations, are you forced to or are you not? Um, all those kinds of things, it does have an impact. And then money and business, right? Politics affects all those because politics are the systems that we use to regulate and rein those things in. And so we have to care about politics and we have to care now more than ever. And then we have to not stop caring. Because when we, when we don't care, when we stop caring, when we don't participate, this is where we find ourselves. And hopefully, us reasonable people can come together and say, hey, listen, we want to start having accountability measures and key performance indicators that go along with these policy promises so that when they don't work, we can hold them accountable and we can put new leadership in place and we can get rid of poor policy. That's what we need to have happen. And so I hope that folks like you who are watching this and, and like me who are making this will stand up and say, it's time to make a change. We don't believe that the government can save us. We don't believe that the government is the answer to all the problems. As a matter of fact, we need the government to get out of the way. We don't need to get rid of them entirely, but we need to get them out of the way. Because if we don't, as you will see, and as you have seen, the problems that they say they're solving exacerbate. So anyway, that's what I got for today. Hopefully something in here was helpful. 
If, if it was, if you could leave me a comment or shoot me a note, I'd appreciate it. It's always nice to get those. Uh, if you had some questions about what I had to talk about here, or if maybe you want me to extrapolate or expand on some of the things that I shared, uh, please let me know. I'd be happy to do it. And if you like the video, seriously, if you could just hit the thumbs up button, or if you're listening to this on a podcasting platform, if you could leave a positive comment, that would be helpful. Uh, that's what helps spread the word. And again, I really appreciate you following along here and, and taking part in this, and I'll see you next time. Thanks.